Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The Tory leadership debate rumbled on this week, with three more clashes between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak covering some pretty familiar ground. Everybody thinks that putting up taxes at this moment is going to hurt the economy. You can't put up taxes and get growth. If we follow Rishi's plans, we, we are headed Sophie, for a recession. Really get, you've me, promised almost £40 me, you, billion. Pounds. It's not moral to ask our children to pick up the tab for the bills that we're not prepared to pay. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. Over the summer weeks, we'll be focusing on the Tory leadership race. So this episode, will be taking you through those latest developments in the race to be the UK's next Prime Minister. From Rishi Sunak's sudden U-turn on taxation, to Liz Truss's latest endorsements and efforts to woo over Northern Tories. To delve into it, I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley, and Political Correspondent Jasmine Cameron-Seleshi. Thank you all for joining. We're into the second week of this summer's Tory leadership contest, and the dynamics haven't particularly changed. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, is in pole position, and she appears on course to be heading to Downing Street on September the 5th. Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, is still struggling to make gains. His campaigns have shown signs of perhaps a little panic. We've also had three further clashes between Truss and Sunak. In Monday's particularly ill-tempered debate on the BBC, the pair returned time and time again to the economy. We are having a really serious discussion about the future of our country and the party. And there is a genuine disagreement here. Whether or not you believe in low taxes, leading to growth and opportunity, enabling people to keep more money in their pockets, or, passing or whether, the bill or on whether to you believe in the highest taxes for 70 years. That is a serious issue. It's not our, the well. differences between me and Rishi are oh. serious differences. They're certainly not pure right. Okay. George Parker, welcome back to the podcast and give us your overview on where the race is. As I said, this is the second week in and it's really felt like it's hotted up, particularly those personal clashes between Mr Sunak and Ms Truss. Yes, I was up in Stoke for the first TV debate on on Monday, a BBC primetime debate, really important debate for both candidates. And you could see what Rishi Sunak was trying to do. He's trying to destabilise Ms Truss, knock her off her stride. And in the spin room, the so-called spin room, you you'll all see people astonished by the fact that Rishi Sunak was going so hard at Liz Truss, talking over her, interrupting her. And halfway through that debate, one of the members of her team texted to say it was typical public school shouty mansplaining. It was really quite an electrifying moment. But it seems to me that everything that Rishi Sunak's tried this week, whether it's been trying to knock her off her stride in that TV debate or some of the policy initiatives that he's launched this week, including on taxation. Everything seems to have been turned back against him. And at the end of the week, I would say Rishi Sunak's in a weaker position than he started it. And as you said in the introduction there, Seb, it looks to all intents and purposes that Liz Truss is you know, certainly the front runner in this campaign. It's hers to lose. 
Robert Shimsley, it's great to have you back after a little break on the podcast. In our wrap of the week that George and I have done, there was someone I spoke to who was quite close to Boris Johnson, and they basically said to me they'd messed up his positioning of his leadership campaign. He was the Brexiter being backed by some of the party's biggest Remainers. He was the tax cutter who's presiding over a bigger state. And this person said he's essentially on the wrong side of the party membership on every major issue. And I think that goes some way to explaining why he struggled this week, because on paper, Rishi Sunak should be completely in sync with the Tory membership. But as we've seen throughout these three debates, he just seems to be on the back foot the whole time and struggling to make headway against Truss. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And part of this is the fact that he's been the Chancellor. I mean, there is a reason why Chancellors get to number 10 far less than people think they're going to, because they have to do unpopular things. Rishi Sunak was wildly popular during the furlough. And the moment he started trying to pay for all the pandemic support, um, he started losing support. He has done a lot of things which not only feel uncomfortable to Conservatives, primarily in the tax-raising area, but it's also a heresy against the Brexit theory because the entire economic premise of Brexit, if one wants to believe there was one, was that Britain was unleashed. It could lower taxes, it could cut regulations, it could do all these things to, to be a powerful, punchy rival to the European Union. Well, Rishi Sunak's stewardship of the economy has been the opposite of that. And Liz Truss, and in fairness to her, she opposed some of these things at the time while she was in cabinet, is much more of a true disciple of Reaganite economics and is therefore much more comfortable with deregulated, low-tax economic thinking. And I think it's put Rishi Sunak very, very badly on the back foot. He's also shown, it has to be said, some quite poor political judgment for a man who's going all out for the leadership. Over the last year, he's been very, very slow to respond to the cost of living crisis. And when he's done it, it's not had the impact he would have liked. And partly that's, again, traditional finance minister's way of looking at things. There's no point in doing it now. People won't notice it. Let's see how long the inflation really lasts for and so on. And it's left him wide open in several places. And then you throw in the whole notion that he is responsible for Boris Johnson's departure in some way. It's his resignation that really pulled the skates out from under Boris Johnson. And all of that makes him a much, much weaker candidate against someone who's capable and has the nous to exploit this situation. Well, you mentioned Boris Johnson there, Robert, and once again, he is still hanging over this leadership race. There's been lots of reports in the Daily Telegraph that um, there's a grassroots move to get him on the ballot for this leadership contest. It feels like that's not going to happen. But Mr Sunak and Mr Truss were asked about the Prime Minister in that BBC debate. As Prime Minister, what marks would you give Boris Johnson out of 10, Ms. Truss? Seven. Seven. Rishi Sunak? Uh, you know what? I, my views are clear. When he was great, he was great, and it got to a point where we need to move forward. And what does, what does that mean? Five out, five out of ten? Well, actually, actually, in delivering a solution to Brexit and winning an election, that's a ten out of ten. Well, I think that answer sort of speaks to Rishi Sunak's problems throughout this campaign. Jasmine Kamslash, it's great to have you back as well on the podcast as well. Around that time of Monday, we also got to this debate about clothing and the cost of Rishi Sunak suits, which is not something that you might think is front and centre of this debate. But Nadine Dorries, the culture secretary, again, is very loyal to Boris Johnson, put out this tweet comparing the cost of Rishi Sunak's £3,500 tailored suit to earrings and Claire's accessories of £4. And bizarrely, this took about a good 10 minutes of the BBC debate talking about this question of, is Rishi Sunak too rich to be Prime Minister? It sort of feels a bit puerile in a way and not really of relevance. 
It does. And that it is quite a trivial discussion about the cost of a candidate's clothes or earrings or shoes or whatever. But I do think that Rishi Sunak does have an image problem. And I know it's a cliche in politics to say that all politicians are out of touch, but that is certainly what the trust team are trying to portray Rishi Sunak as. So it's not just his expensive suits or his shoes, it's his fact that he was on the Sunday Times rich list, for example. And I think it was a couple of weeks ago, there was that clip of a young Rishi Sunak that went viral, where he was saying that he had no working class friends or something like that. And he was actually asked about this in the hustings on Thursday. And he argued that he ought to be judged on what he can do for his country rather than the cost of his suit. And he said that ultimately the Tories are a party of aspiration. And this was met with applause. But what was quite interesting is that chatting to people at the hustings and just chatting to people this week, there is a perception that he's not massively authentic and his wealth comes up in those conversations. There's a real sense that Rishi doesn't really understand what people are going through, whereas Liz Trust does. And so certainly it might appear to be on the surface quite a trivial conversation. But ultimately, the question that members and voters ask themselves is, does this person understand what I'm going through? Can they actually help? There is actually quite a lot of history to this kind of thing. George and I certainly are old enough to remember the contest to succeed Margaret Thatcher when supporters of John Major started attacking Douglas Hurd because he'd gone to Eton and he was forced to defend himself and how his family only been tenant farmers and he'd only gone to Eton because he'd got a scholarship. I mean, there is form in the Conservative Party of the person who can claim slightly more humble background or a more humble background, using it to their advantage to try and persuade party members that they'll be better at speaking to ordinary voters. And George, the other thing we had in this week was the debate about China, where um, the pair traded barbs over who was going to be softer and tougher. And we obviously know, I think, before this contest began, Liz Truss has been very hawkish on China. And there was some strategically leaked documents to the Times that essentially said that Rishi Sunak had looked to try and create an economic partnership. And his team said it was blocked due to national security concerns. But again, it, it actually ended up just pointing out why Liz Truss is so strong in this debate. Yeah, and it goes back to the point Robert was making earlier about how difficult it is to run a leadership campaign from the Treasury or having only recently departed the Treasury, because there's a chance to the Exchequer, you're the person who's having to deal with all the trade-offs involved in foreign policy decisions in this case. So it's very easy for Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary to take a strike a hawkish pose on China or tough sanctions on Russia. But in Cabinet, Rishi Sunak's going to be the one who's saying, well, hang on a sec, what about X, Y, and Z? And you see it coming through repeatedly in this campaign. So you mentioned the China issue, where, yes, Rishi Sunak was organising an economic and financial dialogue with the Chinese. Look at the question of Brexit. You know, Rishi Sunak was the one who was resisting Liz Truss's plan to have legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol, because he said, well, what about the risks of a trade war with the EU? And you can go through a whole series of issues where Rishi Sunak, because he's the person who's been in charge of the economy at a very, very difficult time for the country, is having to point out the downsides of some of the things that Liz Truss has been proposing. Now, at some point, Liz Truss will herself have to face some of these inconvenient trade-offs, but not, not, not in the course of a Tory leadership contest, obviously. George, one important thing to note, though, about Prime Minister Truss is that her support is all going to be based on the right flank of the Conservative Party. And I'm sure our listeners are well versed with the European research group of hardline Brexiters, and they're the ones supporting her candidacy. And the issue for that is going to be when it comes to that thorny issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, they're going to push her into hard and tough action. And when the legislation makes its way through Parliament, they're going to say, 
you have to activate this. And the likes of right-wing MPs, Steve Baker and Mark Francois will give her no room for manoeuvre. And if Prime Minister Trust were to do that, that then risks creating a trade war with you in the midst of a cost of living crisis. So all these promises in a Tory leadership contest sound good, but they will rather clash with reality if she hits 10 Downing Street. Liz Truss's critics say that she's been held hostage by the ERG, and obviously it's well documented she was a Remainer who's made common cause with the Tory right. And you only have to read the Daily Telegraph columns of David Frost, Lord Frost, to see the kind of policy solutions that she'll be encouraged to take if she gets to number 10, whether it's standing up to Brussels, taking a very strong position on the Northern Ireland Protocol, standing up to Russia, standing up to China, restarting fracking to deal with our energy problems, a whole load of things which... I would contend might work quite well in a Tory leadership contest or with the readers of the Daily Telegraph, but aren't necessarily the best thing for the economy or indeed the best way of holding the fragile Tory coalition together of northern and southern voters, you know, smaller state, lower taxes. Whether she'll be able to govern as a govern from the centre, which ultimately is where elections are won traditionally, when she's relying so much on the, uh, on the support of people from the right. Kate McCann, the talk TV presenter, was taken ill. But in the first half of that debate, they were better tempered. And I think that kind of very aggressive interjection that Sunak did on Monday, his team realised that clearly wasn't working. So they were being a bit more respectful and a bit nicer towards each other. But one of the things that I found so bizarre was that um, there was this clash over corporation tax. We need to get growth going. We've got the lowest growth projected in the G7. If we put up taxes, which is what Rishi is proposing, corporation tax, that will mean companies are less likely to invest in the United Kingdom and we're more likely to be heading to a recession. And we know what a recession means. It's Jasmine. So essentially you had Liz Truss attacking Rishi Sunak for raising corporation tax. And then Rishi Sunak responded by saying Liz Truss was on the side of big business, which I thought was particularly bizarre, given the fact, A, Rishi Sunak was chancellor, and B, I could not think of a Tory leadership contender who was more on the side of big business, having the, being the former Goldman Sachs banker that is Mr Sunak. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, time and time again throughout the leadership race, we have seen clashes between Liz and Rishi over the economy, over taxes. And I think this is basically a hangover from that COVID period where we saw the government introduce lots of measures that in many ways, a lot of the Tory base and Tory MPs would argue were unconservative, and whether that was hiking up taxes or measures such as furlough. And I think there's a real desire from the Tory membership to sort of get back to conservative principles, particularly on the economy. And I think that's why we've seen, for example, the figure of Margaret Thatcher raise, you know, be mentioned so many times throughout the debates. Obviously, she did a lot of deregulation and tax cuts, but the economy was in a different place during her time in power. And so I think both of them are just trying to present themselves as the most credible candidate to put the Conservative Party back on the right economic footing. And, you know, whether or not those arguments will actually be practical when we dig down into the details, well, I guess only time will tell. And Seb, just on the point of corporation tax, this is another classic example of Liz Truss adopting policies which sound good on the page of the Daily Telegraph, but don't necessarily work in the real world. The reason Rishi Pasunak was planning to put the corporation tax rate up from 19% to 25% next April was obviously to raise money to repair the public finances. It raises about £17 billion. And also to give himself space to do personal income tax cuts closer to the election. Now, you can't do everything... And Jim Pickard and I did an interview this week with um, Tony Zanker of the CBI, who basically said, look, 
Yes, of course, it'd be nice if the corporation tax didn't go up, but it's not the priority of his members. The priority of his members is making a profit in the first place. And that means reforming pre-profit taxes, things like investment incentives, business rates. It's not a priority for business. It's a strange set of priorities, I think, for Liz Truss. And I think that's something she's going to have to come to terms with very quickly if she wins. Well, on George, we then had probably the biggest U-turn of this campaign on Wednesday, because at the beginning of that BBC debate, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss were asked by Sophie Rayworth, what would you do immediately for the cost of living crisis? And Liz Truss talks about her £30 billion to cut taxes. And Rishi Sunak didn't have an answer, because essentially his whole problem is he's been trying to run an insurgent campaign by protecting the status quo. But then on Wednesday, he did a shuddering U-turn and announced that if he does become prime minister, he would slash VAT from energy bills, which is something that was discussed for quite a long time in the Treasury. I think Boris Johnson made an aside about this at some point this week. Well, it just looked like he was demolishing the, the whole central premise of his whole campaign, which was that tax cuts now would be irresponsible. And yes, I know the arguments that, you know, this would be arguably a deflationary tax cut because you'd be cutting the price of energy bills. But that doesn't really wash in the broader scheme of things. All people will hear is this this, is, this bloke who's been criticising tax cuts for the last two weeks, suddenly announcing a tax cut of his own. And also, as you mentioned, Seb, a tax cut which he rejected whilst he was Chancellor of the Exchequer for two reasons. One is that it's a very blunt instrument. It helps richer households as well as poorer households. And the second thing is it's meant to be temporary, but as Rishi Sunak knows very well, temporary tax cuts become permanent. Who really imagines that the future chancellor is going to put that VAT rate back on energy bills in the run up to the election? And suddenly that's another four billion quid you're the chancellor exchequer's down. So there are good reasons why he hasn't done it. But politically, in the context of this contest, very strange indeed. And Robert, it's not just obviously this tax cut as well. Rishi Sunak's come out with some rather tough language on borders, on migration. And one idea that was floated this week was to use cruise ships to hold um, migrants off for deportation. I think it was quietly dropped from his website after it was pointed out that this would be illegal under international law. And it just gives this sense that they're just throwing policies left, right and centre to try and make some ground, but just doesn't really seem to be working. Yeah, I think there's a bit of desperation creeping in. It's actually going to lead to mistakes, first of the kind that George described on VAT and on other things. He's going to end up trying to outdo trust and possibly make himself look less plausible in the process. Because the truth is they have to remember that although their selectorate is around 200,000 Conservatives, they're not doing this in secret. This is all being watched by the country. It's all being watched and stored away by the Labour Party. And they've got to look plausible once they get to the other side. I mean, Rishi Sunak's pitch to the Tories is that he can win over Labour voters who will warm to him more than they will warm to Liz Truss because he is less ideological. And the problem is the Tories aren't biting on this at the moment and he's getting a bit desperate. You're seeing all kinds of things being said. I mean, I was very struck by the commitment Liz Truss, I think, in the lead, but both of them are, you know, yes, absolutely, we'll have fracking back if local communities want it. Well, I don't know if local communities anywhere in the country really want it, but it's a positioning within the Conservative Party, which is increasingly hostile to the net zero agenda. And while the Conservative Party is hostile to it, the country isn't necessary. So this is going to be a problem going down the line. I just wanted to go back to one thing George was talking about earlier, because I think the big question that a lot of people have about Liz Truss is that she's really quite ideological in her approach to politics. She's very committed to the views that she has and argues them very forcefully. And that's a fantastic asset in cabinet, particularly someone to challenge, you know, the overwhelming consensus. One of the things about Boris Johnson, particularly if you think about things like negotiating with the EU, he always knew 
when to walk away from his bluff. One always had the sense of Boris Johnson that, you know, he was going to push it as far as he could, but he knew when to walk away. One of the questions I think people will have about Liz Truss is, does she have that same instinct for when to walk away? Or are her own convictions, which are more strongly held than Boris Johnson's, going to lead her into trouble, not knowing when to step back from a confrontation? I think that's very true. Now, let's come to Thursday, Jasmine. And we had two things. Number one, Liz Truss endorsed the Northern Powerhouse Rail Project, which was this plan to essentially better link up the cities of the north, particularly with a new Trans-Pennine Tunnel, which is one of the big bottlenecks of the UK's rail network. And when the Johnson government did its 100 billion pound rail infrastructure plan, Northern Powerhouse Rail wasn't in there. And this was seen as a betrayal of the North and a betrayal of what Johnson had said to those voters. And it created a lot of anger and trust came out and on the front of several Northern newspapers and said she would do that. She also gained the endorsement of Jake Berry, who is chair of the Northern Research Group of MPs. Now, all led in to the hustings in Leeds, which I believe you're speaking to us from the morning after. Yeah, so certainly on the Northern Powerhouse Rail front, I think it's quite a clever tactic by Liz Truss in that obviously Johnson's huge majority was built in part from gaining a lot of those quote unquote red wall seats from persuading those voters who were in the north of England, who traditionally voted for Labour, that the Conservatives were for them. And as part of those manifesto pledges back in 2019, there were pledges of increased spending. And so she is trying to make sure that she can maintain that support. There are a lot of people who would have simply lent their vote to Johnson. And so she is trying to give them something to create the impression that actually under her, it's a continuation of Johnson investment in the north of England. So I thought that was quite clever. And actually, turning to the hustings in Leeds. So this was the first of 12 hustings that are set to take place across the country um, over the next couple of weeks. It's quite an interesting format, because unlike previous televised debates, where we've seen both candidates on the stage, In this situation, we had candidates individually interviewed by the presenter and by the audience. And so it was a lot less combative. And we actually got to hear um, the candidates' views on things like immigration, the state of the union, um, benefits, for example. Just sitting in the, the hall, it really felt as though Liz was in her element. So it felt like she was having a conversation with the audience, whereas Rishi seemed like he was talking at the audience. So Liz was engaging. She appeared to be vulnerable at times, making jokes about supporting Lib Dems and bigging up her Yorkshire roots. But she was also telling the audience exactly what they wanted to hear on the economy when it came to lowering taxes, but at the same time, increasing things like defence spending. And she leaned into some of those quote unquote cultural issue. The consensus from other journalists in the room and from members was that actually it was a very good night for Liz. And I think one point that was put to me by a senior Tory party official this week that speaks to that is that Liz Truss has been in and around the Conservative Party for almost 25 years now. And we all know that she was a Liberal Democrat in her younger days, but she did join the Tory party in the late 1990s, which was obviously not a great point for the Tory party. And Robert, I think this is an interesting issue that Sunak only really came into Tory politics before he entered Parliament in 2015. So his kind of feel and knowledge of the grassroots party is much more limited than Truss's. And I think that's also true for the teams around them, that the advice is supporting Liz Truss are much more steeped in the tradition of the Tory party's volunteer base, whereas Rishi Sunak's team are much more kind of SW1 professionals. I think that's doubly true with Rishi Sunak. It's not only true um, for his feel for the Conservative Party, it's also true of his broader political acumen. He's just not been in politics as long as Liz Truss. And he's not had the opportunity, which I think is a really important point, to make his mistakes while unknown. 
you know, the truth is that most people's political careers, they spend quite a lot of time trying to get a seat in Parliament. He goes straight into one of the safest seats in the country. Then they work their way up slowly from the backbenches to PPSs to junior ministers, finally break into cabinet and a lower job. Then eventually they get bigger jobs. That's sort of been Liz Truss's trajectory, although she's not been slow. Rishi Sunak's career has been so fast. He gets to Chancellor so quickly. He hasn't had the opportunity to learn the hard yards of the trade while no one was watching. But I think you're absolutely right. I think his lack of feel for the Conservative Party is one of the reasons why he's being undone in this contest. And finally, the last big event this week was the endorsement of Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary for Liz Trust. This is one that both candidates have wanted because uh, in the very early stages of this race, Ben Wallace was the absolute favourite among Tory party actors, had huge ratings well ahead of everybody else. But citing personal reasons, Mr Wallace did not run, but he came out on Friday and endorsed Liz Trust. This was why. Where very often we've been together abroad. I've sat side by side with her in France, in NATO, uh, in Australia, uh, and in national security councils here in the UK. And I think all of that said to me, look, they're great candidates, both her and Rishi. Rishi would be a, a fine member of anybody's cabinet. And they'd be lucky to have him. But, but for me, Liz, Liz is the one that I think will do best by defence of this nation, by investing in it. Well, George, finally, do you think this sort of almost seals the deal for Liz Truss in a way? Because I think, obviously, that just adds further momentum, further this idea that if you put together everything that's happened this week, she's doing well amongst grandees, she's doing well amongst Tory activists. Her lead seems to be pretty strong and is not shrinking. And the crucial thing coming up next week is the ballot papers start to land among Tory party members. And the general view from past contests is people vote quite quickly in this sense. So, you know, we've got another month or five weeks of this. But in fact, is it really all just over? Well, this contest has been so unpredictable. I think anyone making a firm prediction about what happens would be ahead of the game. And on the face of it, as we speak, it looks like it's Liz Trust, doesn't it? She's grown into this contest. From that awful Channel 4 debate a couple of Fridays ago where she was wooden and looked like a robot and I thought there's no chance for her, she's grown into the contest. She looks relaxed. There's a cheerful air of almost uncertainty about her campaign, even though she's the favourite. She's now got the endorsement, as you mentioned, of Ben Wallace, who's a big hit with the with the Tory base. It's hard to see what can go wrong with her, especially given that Rishi Sunak seems to be flailing around a bit. But you never know. I mean, events happen, don't they? Every newspaper in the land will be digging into the backgrounds of the two candidates trying to dig any dirt out on them. And, you know, the last Sunday before the ballot papers go out, that's a bit of a nervous moment for both candidates, I would have thought. But provided there's nothing unexpected, it looks like it's certainly Liz Truss's to lose. And Robert, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go a bit harder. I think it is over for Rishi Sunak, barring the kind of existential shock George was referring to at the end there. I think Rishi Sunak's one hope, having started when it, when it went to the members as the back marker in this contest, I think his one hope was that he could show he was so much better at communicating, that he was better in debates, and that she was a bit odd and wouldn't relate to the public. And the reverse has happened, actually. I think it's a done deal. And finally, Jasmine? It will be a long campaign and a lot can happen. But there is momentum behind Liz. The members trust her. They see her as, as Robert was saying, they see her as one of them. And I do think, you know, unless there is some shocking revelation that comes out, it does look pretty likely that come September, she'll win it. 
well, I'm going to say and just join the consensus of the FT here and say that Liz Truss has got so much momentum at this point and every bit of polling evidence we've had would say that really she is so far, it's going to be a big struggle to get up. But of course, that could be one of those black swan events that comes along and upends the contest. But we've got plenty more to come. And um, Rishi Sunak sitting down for an interview with Andrew Neil on Friday night. Then we have more hustings in Exeter and there's 12 of these things to go across the country. So we'll be back next week to talk through more of it. George, Robert and Jasmine, thank you so much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed it, then please subscribe. You know you can find us wherever you receive your podcast to get episodes every Saturday morning. And while you're there, leave us a nice positive review. I'm heading away for two weeks to work on a book about the fall of Boris Johnson. And in the meantime, I will leave you in the extremely capable hands of George Parker. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sexworth. And until I'm back, and until you're with George next week, thank you very much for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.